0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary
1: conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Mark Schatzker, who is a writer in residence at the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Center at Yale University. He's also the author of a number of books, including One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. Okay. Second one is Dorito Effect, Surprising Truth About Food and Flavor. And the most recent one is this one right here, The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Welcome, Mark.
0: Thank you for having me. So listen,
1: I really enjoyed this book, this most recent book of yours. I enjoyed the other ones, but I enjoyed this one. It combines a lot of my favorite things. It combines neuroscience, history of science, economics and business, and of course, food and pleasure. What more could you ask for in a book? And I think that what, what really struck me in the book, what I found really interesting, is that a lot of people talk about mismatch. They talk about how we are these apes stranded in a modern world and that we've evolved for a different environment. And a lot of the problems that we have are due to this mismatch. And only we could go back to the savanna, we'd be better off. And I think your book is definitely a mismatch story in some degree, but it's very different from the traditional mismatch theory. So the traditional mismatch theory that I think most people are familiar with would say humans evolved in a world of scarcity, at least scarcity around certain types of things like sweets. And now we're in a world of abundance, and it's that abundance which is causing us all to become obese. And you argue that, no, it's not abundance. It's actually these highly engineered foods. And the story that you tell is one that is not just about the food industry, but it's really also about the discovery of how dopamine works and about how we have conflated liking and wanting. And I think that this is a problem of behavioralists, and including economists, right? Economists don't have any way of distinguishing these two things, but philosophers have. And philosophers have been distinguishing these things for millennia. So it's a return to not just the wisdom of the body, but also wisdom around our, our psychology that I think you're calling for. So hopefully I did justice to, to the book, but there's so much to talk about.
0: It's interesting what you say about mismatch, because I think it's there's this tendency to look at the whatever our background was, the African savanna, and think somehow that was a fall from paradise. What I think makes humans interesting is that that's the place we left. And we've thrived in almost every conceivable environment, with the exception of Antarctica, which tells me that we're actually far more intelligent and adaptable than we think. And and I think we make the mistake of thinking that our inclinations and our programming is far more unintelligent than it actually is. And that has got us in a whole lot of problems.
1: Right. And in some sense, it's highly implausible because Animals exist in lots of different environments of scarcity and environments of abundance. And yet we don't see the obesity epidemic, you know, afflicting our horses if they're grazing in in rich fields versus not so rich fields. And even our livestock, as long as our livestock are kept away from the enhanced industrially manufactured feed that we've designed for them, we we don't see them tending towards so obesity. So it's peculiar that every animal except for humans. lacks this kind of corporeal intelligence that humans supposedly lack.
0: Yeah. And I would say there are even some cases where, I don't know if you'd call it obesity, but if you look at bison, for example, they will put on a great deal of fat in the summer and in the fall, which they will subsist on over the winter. But that is necessary for the environment in which they live, where they have to survive this brutal winter where they're, you know, trying to find something to eat in the deep snow but that's not to say it's destiny for all species. And I think certainly for humans, this is this problem we've had is very recent.
1: So talk maybe a little bit about this idea of homeostasis. I think we understand it, certainly with respect to things like temperature, but for some reason, we, we don't seem to think that when it comes to food, this applies. Could you talk a bit about like how did we come to lose sight of this idea of homeostasis with respect to food and the whole history of studying how animals are capable of seeking out the nutrients that they need. It seems if you just listen to your body, a lot of people will say that, right? If you just listen to your body, will tell you, right, that the nutrients that it needs. How true is that? How smart are we? We're going to talk a bit about the Pelagra belt. Why didn't people realize when they were eating a diet that was deficient in a particular vitamin or mineral, did they crave that? Or did they, when the sailors were suffering from scurvy, Why did they go to their naval officers and say, you guys need to have some oranges on board"? right? There has to be some, presumably if it was an animal could talk, an animal might say, hey, we need some oranges, right? So are we stupid? Are we too reliant on cultural transmission of information about our needs?
0: That's exactly what did happen, is that humans did say, the sailors did say that they experienced these urges. So we have a, a kind of funny sense of scurry from those of us who may have studied it a tiny bit back in high school history. We talk about the swollen gums and so forth. The symptoms were utterly bizarre. Swollen gums were certainly one of the symptoms. People would get these dots on their skin. The flesh became so tender and so sensitive that just even just touching someone's pajamas could cause this awful pain. But what is so interesting about scurvy is that the first symptom was a craving for fruits and vegetables. This was regarded by the medical bigwigs at the time. They totally ignored it. This is when we we had the theory of the humors and people talked about phlegm. And back then, the big scientific minds thought that scurvy was caused by fog, the action of the sea. They thought it was caused by an ill wind, maybe not being in contact with the earth. So they would get on shore and literally bury people up to their necks, thinking this would cure them. It didn't work. But if you looked at the, just the urges, the basic inclinations of sailors, they knew exactly what was wrong. They would talk about their desires for the vegetable productions of the earth. There's a ship's log describing a British sailing vessel called the Centurion, I think it was 1741, an absolute terrible case of scurvy. They're dying, they're, they're throwing bodies overboard. They finally make landfall, an island in the South Pacific called Juan Fernandez. And what do they do? They scamper on shore and they start eating moss and wild turnips. So they're not trying to eat trap game and so forth and go for the big calories. They're eating all these bizarre vegetable things and they talk about how delicious it was. So our palate still contains what's called nutritional wisdom. The problem is we live in a food environment now that has completely, hasn't even considered that as a possibility. The foods we produce now are just absolutely overloaded with additives that confuse the sense. I wrote about it in the Dorito effect, synthetic flavorings. We call them artificial flavors, natural flavors. There's artificial sweeteners, there's fat replacers. There's so much that we have done that has altered the sensed information in food. And this I argue is what is causing our problem. You said, you know, what is it that has um, caused this idea that we lack this kind of intelligence? And I don't know, it's somehow cultural. There's that statement that if it tastes good, spit it out, that absolutely perfectly encapsulates our fear and our absolute distrust of our inclinations, which is interesting when you think about it because how could we have evolved to have desires that are suicidal? It doesn't make sense. And I think when you look at the science, that this is in fact not true. And it was one of the most interesting aspects of writing this book was just this, just this continual uncovering of facts that were absolutely contradictory to what most people think. So let's talk, for example, about this idea that we have a kind of unhinged appetite that left our own devices, the pounds drop off, you look great. And then the weight starts to come back. And this is because the brain is intervening and saying, I want you to gain the weight back. And most people think of this as evidence that our brains want us to gain weight. What our brains really want is for us to be at a particular weight, what what is called a set point. Because here's what's also so interesting about the brain. Scientists do overfeeding studies. They take subjects and put them in laboratories and they feed them way too much food. And it turns out to be just as miserable an experience as starving. It was so difficult to conduct these early experiments, they had to go to a state prison in Vermont. And even then, some of the prisoners would refuse. And the prisoners that did undergo the study, it seemed that they needed too many calories to gain the weight they were gaining, as though they were almost like burning extra calories. And then when the study would end, they would just drop back to their initial weight. So they would snap back to set point the same way people who diet snap back up to their set point. There was even a study done, I think this was in the 1980s, where they tested this with people with obesity, and they found that if you overfed them, they would also snap back. So it's not as though they're on some permanent drive for endless weight gain. The brain is in control. And if we want to understand this problem, we have to understand how the brain understands food and what fundamentally drives the appetite. But to think of this kind of simplistic lust for calories, I think, gets things vastly wrong. That's what we see in people now. But this is not how we were engineered to be.
1: I'm surprised you didn't talk about NFL linemen, right, in that conversation. Because you hear stories about them and the amount of food that they have to eat in order to maintain weight. And for them, food is not a pleasant <laughs> It's a duty. It's an obligation. The minute they retire, they lose tons of weight as they go back to their set point
0: yeah no well, it may be because i'm canadian so i don't watch enough nfl football but that's a great example but here's another interesting thing is that we think that this there's this idea the thrifty gene hypothesis that in our prehistoric past famine was always lurking around the corner so that anyone who had this ability to eat a bit more and store those calories as fat possessed an advantage there are so many reasons this doesn't make sense if you're carrying extra weight, you can't accelerate quickly, you can't turn as quickly, you run the risk of injuring yourself if you're engaged in, in, in something we would think of as being a, an athletic endeavor. It's gonna be harder for you to catch prey. You're gonna be a more plump and more delectable prey object yourself. But I think the most interesting evidence against it has to do with our diet. Now, humans unquestionably eat a calorie-dense diet. If you look at our evolution, about three million years ago, we were more like chimpanzees, our brains were much smaller our guts were much larger. So we could get by on a relatively sparse, let's say a diet, not calorie dense, things like roots and leaves and so forth. As we evolved, the brain got bigger and the gut got smaller. This trade-off took place. That meant we had to eat a more calorie dense diet. We needed more bang for our buck to power this big energy hog of a brain. And most people, they go, aha, that proves that we're born like addicted to calories. But that really doesn't grasp this whole story. Because here's what's so interesting about humans, when you compare us to apes, chimpanzees spend about 80, 85% of their time, their waking time just finding and eating food. What's so interesting about humans is that when we start to eat this calorie dense diet, we spent so much less time gathering food and eating it. This gave us this great luxury of time to do other things, to do all the things that made us human. We could build structures. We could craft weapons. We could make clothing. We could adorn ourselves. We could engage in trade. We could tell stories. So with this calorie-dense diet came the luxury of time. What that meant is that we had to have the ability to say, I've had enough, I'm gonna stop eating and go do something else. So that means that our brains can't be fixated on food the way a brain of a cow would be, because all cows do is munch all day. So. The story of how we evolved to eat this more calorie-dense diet, I think, is good evidence that we evolved not to have this kind of mental attachment to food the way we think we are.
1: It's amazing how it doesn't take long to realize how implausible this theory is. Because while these folks in the hunter-gatherer society, you know, we might think of them as living in, in scarcity, they're not. They work typically two, three hours a day, right? So if food was such a big deal, then they would just spend an extra hour or two working. They did live in a world of abundance. It's just that they would, they wouldn't partake of it as much as they could because they'd rather sit around the campfire. So curious that this hypothesis has taken over. And I think it's taken over, not just in the popular conception, but it's actually something which is a respectable theory in kind of evolutionary biology and psychology circles. And it's hard to understand why. I guess it does line up with, I guess, this normative view that people have uh, around pleasure, right? Where there's there's something inherently suspicious, <laughs> I guess, about yep. about pleasure, right? And but that seems to be like a, I don't know that that would be cultural culturally specific,
0: right? I totally agree. I think it's a cultural, yeah, it's, it's specific, particularly to North America, maybe England too, but this idea that to, to be wary of our natural inclinations, that, that we somehow have to overpower them and put them in their place, not to fall prey to our inclinations. It certainly makes us feel like the rational man is smarter and so forth. But I, again, I think there's not a lot of evidence for it. I think also too, we, we often craft this idea of what our evolutionary past looked like to let ourselves off the hook. Because it's like, it gives you yourself something easy to blame it all on. But often the story is just too simple and it doesn't really bear up upon scrutiny.
1: Now, there's a couple of scientists that you discuss in the book that I hadn't known about. So Michel Kabinac is one of yes. them. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about his work. Now, this other guy, Howard Moskowitz, he's a little bit more well-known because I know Malcolm Gladwell talked about him and he's got this famous kind of TED talk about him. But could you just talk a bit about what Michel Kabinac did, maybe make him a little bit more well-known?
0: Yeah, and I think it helps us understand the question of eating. It puts it in a far different light. So Michel Kabinac, he was initially a doctor and then he became a physiologist. And I would argue he he ultimately became almost like a, a psychologist as well as a philosopher, just a fascinating guy. He was doing work on temperature. This was back in the early 1960s. And back then, the textbook theory about whether water felt too hot or too cold all had to do with skin temperature. And so skin temperature is roughly around body temperature. And if water was significantly hotter than that, It felt too hot. And if it was significantly colder than that, it felt cold. It was all very simple, made sense. Kavanagh was doing some work and he would actually use himself as a subject. So one day he did some work where he kind of overheated himself and he had to get the bathtub ready for his next subject who was due to arrive at any moment. And he was just absolutely overheated, sweating, lightheaded, He's scrubbing out this bath with bleach. Finally comes time to rinse the bath and he turns on the cold water tap and this bracing, gelid water comes out of the faucet and he just lets it run over his hand and he thinks, oh gosh, that feels wonderful. And he has this thought, this water technically, according to the textbooks, is too cold to feel wonderful. What's going on? So immediately he decides right then and there he's gonna change the experiment. And he fills the bathtub with hot water. The subject arrives, he puts the guy in, he puts a temperature probe in his mouth, he puts one in his rectum, and he raises his body temperature until his body temperature is higher than it should be. He's hyperthermic. And he gives. He puts a bucket of really cold water next to him and says, put your hand in the bucket. And according to the textbooks, this water is just too cold to feel good. And he says, how does that water feel? And the guy goes, oh, it feels great. So then Michelle Kavanagh just dumps lots and lots of ice into into this bathtub and slowly the temperature comes down and he goes from being hyperthermic to being normal and then he's hypothermic, he's cold. He puts his hand back in that cold water. How does it feel? It feels terrible. So water that formerly felt great suddenly feels terrible. What's going on? Now he gives the guy hot water. Hot water feels great. It, It seems very basic to us now, but what he realized is that our perception of what feels good when it comes to temperature, isn't this sort of rigid scale depending on a single temperature, it has to do with the internal milieu. And if our body temperature gets too cold, we like things that warm us up. And if our body temperature gets too hot, we like things that cool us down. What is so central to this is the insight that our inclinations, our desires, what we think of as pleasure is not Doing a bad thing it's doing a good thing. It's correcting a problem inside the body. So what we desire, what we crave is in service to the needs of the body. It makes absolute sense. Why would evolution have given us this ability, this inclination, if it didn't serve some beneficial purpose? And the most interesting thing about pleasures, he described as the kind of universal currency of what drives human action. Whether it has to do with thirst, temperature, itchiness, all these things are driven by pleasure. It is the language through which all the body's needs and requirements are understood and mediated by the brain. Now, it creates a very interesting question when it comes to that of obesity, because Kabanak himself had no issue. What he ate was seemed to be what he needed to eat. He loved the delicacies of France, all those rich foods that they love, but he never seemed to eat beyond his needs. He was just kind of not a big guy, he weighed about 150 pounds. But it seemed obvious to him that there seems to be some people who eat beyond their needs. And to him, to look at somebody carrying extra body weight made as much sense as somebody wearing like a sheepskin coat on a hot summer day. Why would that happen? So he did all sorts of fascinating research that showed that our appetite is not dissimilar to how body temperature works, which is to say there is a set point, our body weight, and our inclinations and desires are in service to that. So he would do things like, a great thing he did, just like the temperatures, he had his boss come in one day after the guy hadn't eaten for 12 hours and he gave him a toffee. And you know, how to it taste? Oh, excellent, gives him another toffee, it's excellent. Gives him toffee after toffee, and in the course of a morning, toffees go from being wonderful to being absolutely awful. Did the toffees change? No, the toffees were exactly the same. What changed was the internal milieu, which went from being in a state of requiring calories to being in a state of calorie repletion. No thanks, no more toffees.
1: And then you talk about Moskowitz and how he did this research, found that certain nutrients were craved by people who were deficient in those nutrients. In particular, I think tamarind was what he was studying. Yes,
0: yes. so yeah, Howard's a fascinating guy. And if anybody hasn't seen the Malcolm Gladwell TED Talk, he's the one who discovered that, that people like chunky tomato sauce and Prego made billions of dollars thanks to Howard's research. He did all sorts of really interesting Research like that, he found that to people, some people also like really pulpy orange juice. That was Howard's work, which is inconceivable to people like me who don't like pulp in their orange juice. But Howard will say his most interesting and important discovery lays buried in an, a copy of Science Magazine, that, that prestigious scientific journal from 1978. And Howard had gotten wind that there was a group of people in southern India in a region called Karnataka who loved sour. And this was particularly interesting for him because the basic tastes, sour, bitter, sweet, salty, and umami are thought to be hardwired and universally coded, which is to say we like sweet, we like salty in certain amounts, we don't like sour, we don't like bitter. What's going on with these people who like sour? So he went, he organized a study at a medical school in Bangalore, and the first study he did was on Indian medical students. They would have come from a more privileged background, and he found out that their tastes were just like Western tastes. They liked sweet up to a point. It hit this kind of point where it's optimal and then it drops off. They didn't like sour. People like a little bit of sour, but then when sour starts to get more intense, we don't like it. These Indian medical students looked just the same as Westerners. Then he got these illiterate laborers. And what was interesting with them is they had this reputation for liking sour foods. And particularly they liked this fruit called tamarind. Now we may know tamarind because there's tamarind from Thailand, which can be quite sweet. But the tamarind in India is quite sour, not nearly as much sugar. And the tamarind that would have been available to these poor illiterate laborers Very little money would have been the sourest, most unripe tamarind of all. And they were known to just chew it raw. They would add it to their roti and all that sort of thing. And Howard did this test with them and they couldn't write. So what he would do is he'd just say, if you like this, just write down little bars. And he found their liking for sour looked a lot like their liking for sweet. It just went up and up. More was better until it sort of hit this awesome point, this bliss point, as he called it, and then dropped off. So I did additional research because this is fascinating, but what could possibly explain it? And Karnataka is an interesting part of India because they eat a roti there made from a relative of corn called jawar. And like corn, it, is, it contains very little niacin. And if you don't consume enough niacin, you get a deficiency called pellagra, which, you know, like a scurvy, it's just all sorts of horrible symptoms, diarrhea, dementia, eventually you die, it's just awful. What is so interesting about tamarind is that for a a plant product, it's absolutely loaded with niacin. So here you see these people who don't really get enough niacin in their food. And, huh, isn't that funny? They really like this fruit that happens to be loaded with niacin. But the story gets even more interesting because pellagra is the least of their worries, nutritionally speaking. The big problem in Karnataka is fluorosis. Now, fluorosis is an excess amount of fluoride in the diet. We tend to think fluoride's good because we put it in toothpaste and we put it in the drinking water and it helps us form a harder enamel we get less tooth decay. But if you have too much fluoride in your drinking water, it really disrupts your mineral metabolism and the consequences are awful. You get horribly stained and pitted teeth, but then you also start to get bone deformities, things called like bamboo spine. People who spend their entire lives bent over in a hideous, misshapen form. Well... Karnataka gets very little rain, so a lot of the groundwater is just soaking in these minerals for years and years. And it's absolutely loaded with fluoride. And there's this amazing body of research that shows that tamarind is actually, can be used as almost a medication against fluorosis. When it's given to dogs, for example, they find that they excrete fluoride in their urine. A scientist gave it to poor orphans living in a hostel who you know, very high levels of fluoride in their blood, and they would also excrete it in their urine. Scientists would go into kind of the hinterland and they would find that households that consumed more tamarind had far less cases of pitted teeth and bamboo spine and so forth. So here you find this really interesting evidence that we possess the same kind of nutritional intelligence that animals do, that our preferences and inclinations can adapt to our needs and the palate adjusts, and what we eat, and what we like is what is good for us. So it's very exciting in a way because there's this hidden faculty none of us thought we had that we're much smarter when it comes to eating than we previously thought we were.
1: Well, you mentioned that they like the sour taste. So I was wondering if you could talk about the role of smell and taste in helping people to to figure out the connection between kind of what their body is craving and the extent to which the things that they're eating will satisfy that craving. You mentioned in the book, and I've seen this in multiple places, that part of the brain that's responsible for taste and the amount of genes that we have that are dedicated to smell and taste, they're huge. So this is essentially decoding information in the environment to help us learn whether or not we are satisfying the needs. So how can we think of taste and smell as a, an information system or a kind of a, an interpretation or communication system?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the most interesting to start off is to point out how much we disregard it, we tend to be kind of reductionist. And we put on this sort of white lab coat and we think that the taste and flavor of food is irrelevant and we talk about it in analytical terms, but protein and fat and calories. We have no clue what we're talking about, but we carry on as though we have the specialty. And yet you look at our genome and of all the parts of the body, our, what I would call our nutrient detection system, the nose and mouth takes up more genetic code than any other bodily system, more than your brain, your eyeballs, your gonads, more than anything. So obviously it's got to be really important. And what is it there for? It is there to detect nutrients. It doesn't seem obvious because there's not this one-on-one correlation between how something tastes and the nutrient inside it. It's not like niacin has a flavor and thiamin has a flavor. Salt certainly has a flavor and salt is an essential mineral, but it gets more complicated than that. And the reason is that so many of the nutrients that we need are not easily detected. The molecules are too stable. So we developed a system to detect the Volatile chemicals, which call aromas, that are associated with them. So, if you look, for example, in animal studies, if you make an animal deficient, let's say in a mineral like phosphorus, it will learn to seek out flavors that point it in that direction. It doesn't taste the phosphorus, but it detects flavors that bring it to phosphorus. So, it's a sort of an association that works. That's the way it works for us and it plays a really important role. I'll talk about two examples. The first is a very sad story of this is over a hundred years old, a little boy. He was nine years old at the time, and he somehow consumed clam chowder that was so hot, it sealed his esophagus shut, burned it shut. I'm trying to envision this clam chowder event, but that's what happened. And so from that point forward, putting food in his mouth made absolutely no sense because it could not get from his mouth to his stomach. So Chewing, tasting was just irrelevant at that point. So what doctors did was so that he could nourish himself is they created a hole in his stomach of what's called a fistula. And he could literally load food in the same way you load boxes into the trunk of your car, just physically put it in. Now, the problem is it wasn't really working. They created this and they were feeding him that way, but he was not thriving. He was doing very badly. And one day this little boy just squeaks out, let me taste it first. So they let him taste his food, he would chew it up, and then he would put it inside his stomach. And all of a sudden, that's what turned things around, that's what changed his life. And for the rest of his life, he insisted on chewing his food first, and then he would spit it into a tube that was connected to his stomach. And he said if he didn't do that, it's like the food would go right through him. So this tells us how important this It is for the brain to experience the food that we eat. And it's because our brain is not this stone age moron that's hell bent on calories. Our brain is like a paranoid accountant. It is fixated on measurement and it measures food as it comes in. That's what we experience as taste and aroma, but as the brain measuring saying, what am I getting? But it also does a kind of a post-game measurement once it's gotten to the stomach and it starts to get metabolized. And it says, what did I get? So I'll talk about another experiment that illustrates how important this is and how drastically things can go wrong. So this was work done by a woman named Dana Small, a neuroscientist at Yale. And she was asking, I guess what we would think of as an important question is can we create beverages that are just as rewarding but contain fewer calories? Because wouldn't it be great if we could satisfy this desire of ours with fewer calories, then maybe we could all lose a bit of weight. The question is, how do you answer that? So what she did is she, it was very ingenious. She created five drinks. They all had their own distinctive flavor and color. She put in a artificial sweetener called sucralose. So they all tasted like they had about 75 calories worth of sugar. She then altered the actual caloric content by using a tasteless, starch called maltodextrin. So one of the drinks had no calories. One had, I think it was 37. One had 75. One had 120. And one had 150. So they all, same level of sweetness, different level of calories. She gave these drinks to subjects and she let their brains learn them. They would taste them. The brain would absorb how they tasted. And then it would do this post-game analysis and said, what did I get? And she anticipated that the drink with 150 calories, the drink that had the most calories will generate the biggest brain response because the brain would learn this is where the calories are. So she puts these subjects in the fMRI, the big brain scanner, and she scans their brain as they taste each of these drinks. And the results are just utterly not at all what she expected. The 150 calorie drink didn't get much of a response at all. What really got the big response was the one right in the middle the 75 calorie drink. And she thought, that's weird. So weird that she figured, I probably goofed it up, I better do it again. The same thing happens. So then she takes her subjects, she puts them in an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures what's called the thermic effect of food. Now, when you consume food, the body starts to process it to say, I need to do, put this here, put this there. That generates heat, like your car generates heat when you've been running the engine, and we can measure that. Well, the textbooks would tell you the more calories you consume, the larger the thermic effect. So one day, a woman comes in, a subject, I think she was in her early 20s, she drinks the 75-calorie drink, she goes in the indirect calorimeter, and, oh, there's this lovely little plume of heat, exactly what you'd expect. A few days later, she comes back, she drinks the 150-calorie drink, she goes in the indirect calorimeter, nothing happens. The metabolic response is flat. And Dana Small is trying to figure out what is going on and it hits her. It's the number 75. The drinks were sweetened as though to taste as though they had 75 calories worth of sugar. And the one that got the response actually had 75 calories. This was a breakthrough moment because it tells us that sweetness is not this frivolous sensation disconnected from nutrition. Sweetness is an integral part of nutrition. It is a signal that begins metabolism it tells the body this is what you're getting and when the body gets what it's expecting things work beautifully when there's this sudden mismatch what dana small calls it, nutritive mismatch things don't work when the body is expecting x and it gets y it just sort of throws up its hands and goes what's going on it shows us so much that sensing food is very very important and it's something we've totally disregarded
1: yeah, I mean, what's fascinating about those studies is that it's not just that the taste is a mechanism that helps you to identify whether or not you have met the needs that you have, but it also prepares you for what it is that you're about to consume. And then it alters the way in which you respond to what you've just consumed. And this idea of mismatch, I really want to dig into this because I think this is really at the heart of your story. And For years, I've been in my data and decisions class. I've been using that yogurt study, right, with the mice where they consume naturally sweetened yogurt and artificially sweetened yogurt. And the ones who consume the artificially sweetened yogurt wind up gaining more weight than the ones who eat the naturally sweetened yogurt, which my students are just, it's actually, we're talking about statistics. They're just blown away by the study. They have no idea what the heck is going on here. I wasn't sure what was going on. And I thought, Is it because these creatures then go out and eat more of other things because their desire for sweet things is ramped up because they think that, oh, this relatively large amount of sweetness corresponds to a relatively small number of calories. So if I want to get a a minimum amount of calories, I have to go for something even sweeter. But I think you're saying that mismatch can screw you up in either direction. Any kind of mismatch is going to lead to potential metabolic problems.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think Dana Small's work right there shows that it can lead to metabolic problems. And she did more work that found that, it, found that it leads to insulin insensitivity, makes adolescents pre-diabetics. That's some very alarming work. But I'm also aware of that study you're talking about. I think that was Su- Susie Swither's study. She's at Purdue. And that found, yes, that rats that were given yogurt that was artificially sweetened ended up gaining more weight. But what's interesting is I would say this is also another case of mismatch because they were also exposed to food that was naturally sweetened with sugar. So their sweet signal became unreliable. Now, this is really interesting to think about because we talk about evolution and mismatch. Sweetness, if you think about sweetness, it was a prize historically. Fruit was sweet, fruit contained calories. may have been difficult to get that fruit. There could be all sorts of things in your way, competition, predators. But once you got that fruit in your hand, it didn't lie to you. If it was sweeter, it had more calories. We have now for the first time in the existence of our species created uncertainty in that sweet signal. It used to always mean sweetness. Now it might mean sweet. It might not mean sweet. And as I mentioned, the brain is really hell-bent on measuring. It measures stuff as it comes in, but then it measures it again and said, did I get what I wanted? So what do you call it when you don't get what you wanted? Psychologists call it uncertainty. There's also a, they call it reward prediction error, which is just, sounds complex, but it's just basically saying the brain was predicting a reward and that didn't happen. And this is well-known and it's well-studied and it provokes a very well-known response, which is enhanced motivation. when. We're faced with an uncertain cue. We work extra hard to get the reward that we want. And it's something we don't experience it as brooding and questioning. We experience it as elevated, like we're excited, want it. And I think maybe the best example for people to understand this, I use the example of buttons. If you think of an elevator, when you call the elevator, you don't know what's going on, right? So you walk over the elevator, somebody's already pressed the up button. You can see that it's illuminated. What do you do? You step up to it and you you hammer it. You press it like three, four times. Get that message across. What's going on? When you get inside the elevator, the door close button, many of those buttons are actually not even connected. So you press it, it doesn't work. You just press it over and over again. You jab it. But let's say you're going to the 14th floor. How many times do you press the 14 button? Once you press it, it illuminates. You know you're going to the 14th floor. You might have to stop at the sixth floor, but you know that's where you're going. It's reliable. How many times do you, When you turn on the light, when you walk into a room, do you aggressively really punch it up or you just gently flick it? You gently flick it because you know it's a reliable button. But if you're trying to turn on your TV and it doesn't seem to be working, you really start to hammer that button. The uncertainty motivates us. And it's the same thing we see with food. One of the most interesting things about obesity is that most people think it's it's an indulgence in pleasure, that people with obesity lose themselves in the joy of eating. And the neuroscience tells us this is in fact not true. What we see, if we look at two brains, let's say someone who's trim and someone who has obesity, and let's say there's a milkshake. Everyone thinks when they take the sip of that milkshake, that's where you see the difference. The obese brain lights up like a Christmas tree and the trim brain doesn't not what we see. If anything, the trim brain enjoys the milkshake more. Where we see the difference is the sight of that milkshake, when they get the cue for it. The trim brain says, that looks like a nice milkshake, that kind of want to have a sip. The obese brain goes, I really want a sip of that milkshake. So it is a disease of desire, of motivation. And this is what we see with reward prediction error with uncertainty, that you provoke a motivation response. So let's go and look back at Dana's work She's looking at just one sensation, that is sweet taste. If we look at our food environment, there's so many ways we've altered the taste of food. There's artificial sweeteners. There's also sugar alcohol, same sweetness at about half the calories. There's allosteric modifiers that alter the way your taste buds work. But then there's also a whole family of fat replacers, Unlike the artificial sweetener industry, the fat replacer industry has done a very good job of kind of lurking in the shadows. Nobody knows this stuff is in food, but it's all over the place. Anytime you see something like a light mayonnaise or a low fat salad dressing, that's because it has something in there called a fat replacer. And it's like an artificial sweetener. It delivers, it evokes this sensation of rich, creamy fattiness in the mouth and delivers fewer calories. Great idea if your brain is a kind of Stone Age idiot Really bad idea if your brain is actually very intelligent. Now it's not just fat replacers. I wrote a whole book about the flavor industry and how we alter the sensed quality of food with fake flavors. But there's even stuff we do when we process food where we're actually not trying to change the the taste properties, but we just accidentally change them. So I talk about the Kelco Corporation. I think it was the 1930s. They had a patent for alginate, which is a sort of a stabilizer for ice cream. You know, there's going to be fewer ice crystals that form. And they also said it, it, it imparts a nice creamy texture. So here we see something where we're just trying to get rid of the ice crystals, but we make it creamier. That's telling your brain there's calories. We use modified starches, which are, you know, we'll take something like potato, we'll take the starch out, but get rid of the potato-ness. So it's, I would call it a stealth, a stealth carb. You'll put it in something like a frozen meal or a microwave pizza so it doesn't, you don't get a puddle forming when you microwave it. This is a calories getting into your body that your brain can't sense. So, We know that ultra-processed foods are the problem, but the question is, what specifically is it? And my argument is that it's the sensory qualities that we've changed. The brain can no longer understand the food that it's getting, and that has evoked a motivation response. It has introduced uncertainty, and we respond by wanting to eat more. And that's what we see in the brain scans. We want to eat too much food.
1: But what's interesting is it's not just about making things taste sweeter and fattier than they are, sometimes it's the opposite, right? So if we think about a sugary Coke, if that was just pure sugar water, like it would be disgusting, right? And the the flavorings actually, in some ways, counterbalance, right, the sweetness.
0: And I think what they do is they put on a sheen of kind of nutritional complexity that it doesn't actually have. So once again, this is evoking an experience of food that doesn't match the actual nutrients that are ingested.
1: Now, you have a whole section in the book on on dopamine, which I really enjoyed, because I think most people have a very simplistic view of how dopamine works, right? They think of it as the the pleasure chemical, right? Because everyone knows about the stories of the rats that just peck at the lever until they die. But you talk about the work of Kent Berridge, and he's another scientist that, whose work I was unfamiliar with. And it's really brilliant work that, that he did to tease apart this kind of the liking and the wanting aspects of the dopamine system. Could you dig into that a bit?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. It's amazing work. And it started because Kent Barridge, like so many people, really was a believer that dopamine was the pleasure chemical. And when we prove something in science, we don't prove it with one experiment. We prove it with a whole bunch. So he wanted to generate more evidence that dopamine equaled pleasure. So he did some work with rats and he'd done postgraduate work on how the facial expressions of rats can reveal either pleasure or displeasure. So what he did is he used drugs to tone down the dopamine, tone down the pleasure response. And then he fired some sugar water into their mouths and predicting you've taken away the pleasure ability, they're not gonna enjoy this sugar water. The rats enjoyed the sugar water. They would do these cute little rat things like stick their tongue out or lick their paws. They
1: just, so they'd enjoy it, but they wouldn't pursue it.
0: No, they wouldn't, but they would enjoy it. And that didn't make sense. So he said, what's going on? Like Dana Smalley's, I must've goofed up. I'll do it again. Happened again. So what he then does is he lesions their brain. He just gets rid of these dopamine reward circuit. It's gone. And they're in this kind of listless, beige, awful state. They just sit there almost motionless in a catatonic state of zero pleasure and he fires sugar water in their mouth and it happens again they stick their tongue out they lick their paws what's going on so then he decides he's going to change course and now he uses uh, electrical stimulation to really crank up dopamine and now the rats are just gorging like mad they're just eating and this sort of looks like okay maybe dopamine's pleasure but not really because he's looking at their facial responses and they're making these yuck responses like i can't stand this food i can't stop eating but i can't stand it really is looking weird. What is going on? Other evidence start to drift in from other areas of science. Dopamine is also involved in movement and Parkinson's disease is an underproduction of dopamine. So some of the therapies are try to boost dopamine. So they would give Parkinson's patients these drugs that boost dopamine levels in their brains and they would start to do strange things. One of them He just took apart his fridge for no reason. Another went and just started chopping wood. They would like to go gambling. Scratch cards would be really popular. They would binge watch pornography. They would pester their wives for sex. They would visit prostitutes. To the external observer, this looks like they're just having a whale of a good time, but they would all say, I didn't enjoy any of it. I felt compelled to do it. What is going on? Well, eventually Kent Barrage, he cracks the riddle. And what he discovers is that what we think of as pleasure isn't one thing, it's two things. And it's, there's a temporal component to it. There's the desire phase. There's the attraction phase, uh, what he calls wanting. At its most elemental, you can think of it as craving, but as basic desire. And this is what's mediated by dopamine. This is motivation. This is how we get the things that we need. But then when we actually get them, there's a different neural circuit. This one runs on the opioid neurotransmitters. And that's what Kent Berridge calls liking. That's what we think of as enjoyment, euphoria, ah. And they're two very different things. So dopamine is motivation, but dopamine is not pleasure. Pleasure is the opioids. And that's what's so important, like I said, when we look at people with obesity, it's the wanting that we see. They have an amped up desire to eat, but if anything, they have a blunted pleasure response so it's a truly miserable state of affairs
1: i think economists and behavioralists they're a little confused by this right because they they think that these are the same right you look at someone's behavior and you say they want it and then they satisfy their wants so now they're happy and then maybe some new wants come along and they go and satisfy them and we even talk about revealed preferences right so if you do it it must be because you're made happy by it and these if these are completely separate systems that means we can have people that are in a continual state of wanting without ever experiencing any pleasure and those people potentially could experience pleasure without the sense of of wanting and it's the former that is really what it means to be addicted right and yeah. so and so you talk about kind of food addiction and where that might come from and you talk about the role of uncertain rewards in the development here now we we know about how uncertain rewards encourage gambling with slot machines. We know how uncertain rewards encourage constant engagement with your phone, right? While you're waiting for all the little notifications to come in and so forth and scrolling through your feed. How does that play out with food? Because one would think that what's uncertain about buying a bag of chips and sitting down and eating the whole bag of chips? I mean, you kind of know what you're getting and at least on the surface, it seems you're getting what you set out to get. So how does this idea of uncertain rewards create kind of food addiction?
0: So I think we see uncertainty, there's a relationship between socioeconomic status and obesity. And right there, there's a material uncertainty in people's lives. And more interestingly, that that connection becomes more solid when they look at actual food uncertainty, when they look at whether people have difficulty paying the bills. So there, sometimes it looks really irrational. People will see people with lower income and it just seems so crazy. Why would you consume too much food? You can't afford it, you're giving yourself health problems, but it's a brain response that when there's times of scarcity, it's kind of booking by evolution, I should want more. But then you're like, okay, well, what about all the middle-class people with two fridges and they're not facing these problems? And that's where I think we could get back to this work where we see that you can change the value of these food cues, like sweetness, like fat, These things were always dependable cues and they have become uncertain. And that's where there's so much uncertainty in the food environment. So you'd say, yes, and and this would predict exactly why people are going and seeking out high-calorie foods. Because the same way the gambler's looking for the big win, when we're put in that uncertain state, we want to get what we're missing. So those, the same way that the the gambler will look for the big win, we are drawn to these high-calorie foods. and there's so much, as I mentioned, there's so much in the way we process food that starts to tamper with its sensed properties. You mentioned a bag of chips. A bag of chips and maybe just regular salted chips are okay. But when we start to add all these flavorings, we're again, we're telling the brain that's getting something that it's never really getting.
1: Now, I was wondering if we could start, go back to where you started the book, which is this story about pellagra. And pellagra, like rickets or goiters or whatever, it's a nutritional deficiency. And it was fairly widespread in parts of the world, in part because I guess in areas where people would eat corn as their main source of nutrition, they, they'd forgotten about the, the preparation techniques that the folks in Mexico <laughs> have known for centuries. And so we talk about Northern Italy and the U.S. South, and they're both in the same position in the 1930s. And yet there's been this radical divergence in terms of health outcomes, obesity in particular.
0: Yes, it's really interesting. Uh, Yes, so pellagra over a century ago was raging in two parts of the world, Northern Italy and the Southern U.S. And it both had to do in both cases with diet, too much corn. In the Southern U.S., they were eating grits along with pork fat and molasses. In Italy, they were eating too much polenta. And polenta is an Italian version of grits. And not enough niacin. So they were getting... Well, we know now that it was due to a lack of niacin. Back then, they had no idea. There was all sorts of bizarre theories. It's really interesting to look at because it sort of reminds you of obesity. There was all these experts at the time who had all these theories. It's just like now, but none of them work. Some thought that they, there were spores that got into the blood and burst into flame. Some thought that a pellagra is spread by insects. There was a mosquito camp. There was a sandfly camp. Some were sure it was an infectious disease. It was solved by a guy named Joseph Goldberger, an epidemiologist who came to the American South. And he went into these sanitariums, weirdly, it was just awful conditions. And he said, Don't do a thing, don't mop the floor, don't wash the sheets. And he started to feed the patients what everyone thought was a bizarre diet of milk and beans and cheese and meat. And he cured it. He even created Pellagra with some prisoners by putting them on this diet, this Southern diet of pork fat, molasses, and grits. And it was a very, it was very important research because it led to our understanding of micronutrients. Ultimately, the discovery of niacin, which vitamin B3, but on a more important level, it made us understand that food isn't just this sort of amorphous stuff that you put in your mouth, that it has essential elements that are necessary for the continuation of life. What's so interesting is how the two cultures responded to it. America did what we would think of as the scientifically intelligent thing to do. We said, if people need niacin, if it is an essential nutrient without which you die, Let's put niacin in food. In fact, let's put a whole bunch of B vitamins in food, thiamine, riboflavin. Let's also put the mineral iron in food. So in the early 1940s, the American government passed the laws that essentially made law what we call enrichment. It's also called fortification. We started to put these B vitamins along with iron first into bread, and then it went into flour. It's in pasta, donuts. Now it's everywhere. It's in grits. It's in rice. It's in breakfast cereal. It's in energy drinks. It's in all sorts of things. It worked so well. Pellagra was gone like overnight. It was just amazing. It was this really wonderful marriage of public policy and the cutting edge science of nutrition. Then you go over to funny old Italy, and they didn't do that. They didn't put niacin in the polenta. They didn't tell people what niacin was. They said things like, we should bake bread in communal ovens. And they said, poor people should raise rabbits because rabbits are cheap to raise and you can eat rabbits. And some people even said, People with pellagra should drink vino. And you're like, what the heck are these guys talking about? These people are dying of a nutritional deficiency and you want to give them a glass of wine. I mean, maybe maybe it's like their last meal or something. But in fact, it, it wasn't such a bad idea because the wines back then weren't well filtered and they had a lot of yeast floating around and yeast contains a whole lot of niacin. So I don't think they knew the reason, but it was actually pretty good advice to tell someone to drink wine back then. Well, let's look at how things worked out for Italy. It did take longer for them to cure pellagra, but they literally ate their way out of a nutritional deficiency. Fast forward the clock a hundred years and things couldn't be more different. The American South went from one nutritional disaster to another. What was once the pellagra belt is now the diabetes belt. It's also called the obesity belt. It's an absolutely dismal view of eating because it seems to suggest you either don't have enough food or you have too much and there's no happy medium. You go and look at italy and particularly a city called bologna which i visited and it is an absolute alice in wonderland upside down world where nothing that you thought makes any sense the northern italians do not eat a mediterranean diet that's southern italy they're not in the olive oil and the fish and the, the pulses and all that they love fat and carbs they love pork salumi products they love cream they love cheese they are obsessed with it. At the Chamber of Commerce, they have a repository of official recipes. If you're gonna make lasagna, if you're gonna to make tortellini, if you're gonna make this or that, you have to make it a certain way. They so love pasta that their favorite noodle, called tagliatella, is cast in gold and kept the perfect, platonically perfect noodle, is cast in gold and, and kept at the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, the food is so good that people from all over the world travel there. It's culinary tourism. I want to go there and eat what they're eating. It's so delicious. So if deliciousness was really our undoing, you would expect the northern Italians to be the absolute plumpest people in the world. And they are among the very thinnest. Their rate of obesity is less than 8%. In the United States, it's 42%. It's even higher in the obesity belt. So this is perplexing but also very encouraging because it can tell us you actually can have a wonderful relationship with food, indulge your desires, enjoy yourself, and not literally pay this heavy price.
1: We've got this entire science around nutrition, which of course, you know, who can argue that's a bad thing, right? Understanding what people need and making sure that they get it. Then we've got this whole science around around flavors, which is not about people need, but what people want. And that science has developed quite a bit in the last century or so. And it seems like those two sciences operating independently converge around the modern diet, where maybe you look at a, I don't know, one of these cereals that people buy for their kids and you've scientifically engineered the nutrition. So you've got the the vitamins, and then you scientifically engineer all these different flavors. And then you somehow put it all all together. So, you know, what's the problem? How could you argue with science? It gives you what you need nutritionally and it gives you what you want flavor wise. Sounds like a great deal.
0: It sounds like it, but it's because the science doesn't understand how the brain works. We did not evolve to be nutritionists. We also did not evolve to eat flavors out of context with their associated nutrition. And it all goes back to pellagra. And I think it comes down to this. We looked in North America, we looked at pellagra and we said the problem is food. Food is by its nature incomplete. We know that, we're smarter now, and we know what vitamins are. And we also know that our own inclinations are wrong because here's people who don't know what's good for them, they're dying of a nutritional deficiency. So we will fix what's wrong with food. We will alter food to make it better. And fortification was just the beginning. We invented artificial sweeteners, we invented fake flavors, we invented fat replacers. We just never think twice about changing the way food tastes. Italians looked at pellagra and they said, food isn't the problem. It's the cure. These people are poor. They can't afford good food. Let's give them access to food. So Italians don't live trying to repress the experience of food and trying to perfect what's wrong with nature. They celebrate nature. They celebrate the products of the land and of the sea. They love eating. They take joy. And they protect these foods. They pass laws. They say, if you're going to call this Parmigiano-Reggiano, you have to make it a certain way. You're going to call these San Marzano tomatoes. You have to grow them a certain way. So I think the problem It comes right down to that is we think we're better than nature and we can perfect nature's wrongs. Italians revere nature and see food as being perfect. And the experience of desiring and eating and enjoying food is telling you something important about what's in that food. Their approach is far less scientifically complex, but it is clearly a better approach that has better results.
1: So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about livestock. And one of the things that I've always been perplexed by is the barrier to transmission of insight from these different domains, right? It seems people who are raising animals learn a lot about animals. And people who are studying humans oftentimes feel like they have to develop these insights completely independently of the research that happens in the animal world. So we've been trying to figure out how to make our animals fat for decades to give us the largest amount of output per unit of input, right? And then Humans on the other side are worried about getting fat, and yet the science of making people fat and making animals fat, you know, should presumably tell you a little bit about what's going on with humans. Could you talk a bit about what we've done to our livestock in the last couple decades and why that might tell us a bit about not just how food has evolved, but also how making people larger or smaller might derive some insight from what we do to our animals?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point you make. I'm an outsider to universities, and I find it so funny that you have these silos that never talk to each other. So you have two departments that are essentially studying the same thing. There's the animal sciences and the human sciences, and and there's scientists in each one that specialize in appetite and intake and weight gain, they never talk to each other. (laughs) Like, you guys need to get together. The story of livestock is really interesting because that's where this cultural difference I talk about with this decision to fortify food, that's where it really starts to look interesting. So let's talk specifically about pig farming in the 1950s, because that's when pig farming went from the Wizard of Oz farm, what farms looked like back then, with pigs out in the field munching away versus what we have nowadays, which is essentially super optimized flesh factories with pigs packed away in multi-story quote, barns where they're just consuming feed and getting big really quick. Back in the 1950s, farmers wanted to get their pigs big and fat quickly because that's how they made money. The quicker you could get them in and out the door, the more money you made. They knew that there was like a rocket fuel feed you could give your pigs, which was corn and soy. But they knew you couldn't give them too much because then it was like they would develop a pig version of pellagra. Their diet was not balanced. So they knew that to balance the diet, you had to send the pigs out into the field where they would forage for on, on plants like alfalfa, if you didn't do that you had to bring the green feed to them. They knew this, was, they didn't know why, but they knew that this balanced the diet. The discovery of B vitamins changed farming forever. We're very concerned today with things like confinement farming of, you know, confining animals into tight spaces and feeding them the kind of strangely artificial-seeming feed that gets them big very quickly. This was all made possible by that the discovery that took place with Joseph Goldberger's work with these essential vitamins. The B vitamins meant you could give your pigs this rocket fuel feed of corn and soy, and you didn't have to send them up to pasture. You could just dust in this powder of B vitamins. And that feed was all they needed. And you look at the growth curves and they just took off. The pigs got bigger and fatter, quicker than they ever had before, and this changed things forever. Pigs were rousted off pasture. They were put into what we now call barns, and they were given what is called the hot ration, the super high-calorie feed. What made that feed possible? It wasn't just that it was calorie-dense. It's that it had the B vitamins that metabolize those calories. Calories are useless without the right vitamins. The American Southerners dying of pellagra were eating tons of calories, grits, Pork fat and molasses, carbs, sugar, and fat. You need the B vitamins. They're the energy metabolizing vitamins. So pig farming tells us that if you wanna get an animal fat really quickly, you give it a very calorie dense feed paired with B vitamins to metabolize those calories. What did we do with human feed? We started adding B vitamins to our processed carbs. So this book is asking the question, maybe that wasn't such a smart idea because that combination gets animals fat quickly. And our problem is that we get fat quickly. And over in Italy, where they don't get fat quickly, they don't add B vitamins to their polenta or their bread or anything.
1: And so, look, when we see something like smoking, we know it's bad for people. And so we try to reduce the amount of smoking through policy measures, right? We tax cigarettes. We make it difficult for people to acquire them. Then we have some kind of social norms where we say, hey, don't smoke. It's bad for you. We have a lot of education around it. If we want people to eat in a way that is healthier, how do we do it? It seems like it's a win win because, on the one hand, you get more satisfaction. On the other hand, you reduce your cravings, right? Who could say no to this? Is it simply that people are oblivious to this, both at the kind of ordinary human level, but also at the kind of I don't know, nu- nutritionist level or the the scientific level? Is it something that, oh, if we just overcame this ignorance, then all of a sudden the problem would go away? Or do we need to have some kind of policy measures? Do we need, Look, here in Berkeley, we have a soda tax. I was very disappointed when I learned that the soda tax does not cover diet sodas. And so when I found that out, and it, apparently the people who drafted it, it never even occurred to them that they should be you're taxing diet sodas as well right they just taxed the ones with the sugar in it but there is evidence that taxing things like soda do reduce consumption of soda is does it make sense to do something like that or if we think about what the fda does right the fda requires truth in advertising is there a way that we can require truthful matching between flavors and nutrients right and say hey this dorito is a counterfeit it's you're duping people's metabolisms and you're you're duping people's taste buds, right? This should be illegal, right? Is there a way that we could do this through policy? Or is this simply, do we just have to rehabilitate people's appetites?
0: I I think it's the cultural problem. I I don't think we can legislate our way out of this. First of all, if you look at the healthiest cultures in the world, all eat great food. Italy, South Korea, Japan, three countries have had the pleasure of eating and the food is incredible and their rates of obesity are, are much, much lower. But they didn't do this by enacting legislation. They did it because they revere their cultural traditions. They love the experience of eating. It's something they share, it's something they enjoy. They're not like declaring war on food and arguing over carbs and fat and jumping on this trend or that trend. The other problem is when we try to enact legislation, We don't realize that humans are very crafty. So when we do things, soda taxes can be successful in terms of reducing soda consumption. doesn't reduce caloric consumption. We find some other place to get the calories. I spent some time with a scientist in Germany who treats people with disordered eating. And her solution is not to change Germany. It's to change them. And I think that's what we need to do. And I don't know how you do that. I think there are positive signs. If you look at things like our taste in wine or our taste in cheese or our taste in craft beer, this is being, some people say it's getting more snobby or something. I would say it's being driven more by an expectation of a better flavor experience. And people are spending money to get better tasting food. I think that's great. But other things can have counterintuitive results. It's become very popular to put calorie information on the back of packaging. I'm not against it. But what it's done is it made us all, first of all, none of us can count calories. None of us has any clue how many calories they go through in a day, what they're expending. No, The scientists who do this for a living can't predict it none of us have a whole. And yet we'll, we might want to buy some salad dressing or something. We'll look at two bottles and we'll say, one's got 30 calories per serving, one's got 22. I'm going to get the one that has 22. Every time we make that decision, we're incentivizing the food makers to lower the calorie count. How do they do that? With things like artificial sweeteners, with fat replacers. So we're essentially encouraging them to create nutritive mismatch because we become so fearful of calories. So it really is so complex and so much of it has to do with the fact that we don't understand how the brain understands food. So we carry on like it's this rational thing, you can count calories, you can eat healthy, we just don't work that way. And when we expect people to eat healthy, we don't realize that due to our food system, they're experiencing really powerful cravings for food. These people really want to eat this food. So it's a very tangled web to unweave. I think the most important thing, if you want to get started, though, is understanding the nature of the problem. And hopefully then you can start what will ultimately be a slow process to to fix the damage that's been done.
1: So what would you say to someone who said, this sounds great. You have to really be wealthy in America to eat well. I personally, I don't really buy food. I buy ingredients. So I'm unusual in that sense. And- some people refer to it like the outer loop diet, right? You know, you never you never go down the aisles where they have things in boxes. And so that's not entirely true, right? Because you got to get pasta and rice and so forth. You got to go in there every now and then and get some things. But some people would say, oh, look, if you buy one of these chickens that, that live, lives a happy life and, and takes months to mature, it's going to cost you six or seven times what it would cost you to buy one of these chickens at Costco. So you have to be wealthy. Now, usually my counter is, yeah, but beans don't cost dried beans don't cost anything really they're pretty damn cheap and they're a lot cheaper than fruit loops and triscuits and stuff like that is the argument about cost kind of a a red herring why
0: Uh, i would say this i think there certainly are some people who are economically stressed in such a way that to expect them to go out and buy what you and i would think of as wholesome ingredients may not even be available where they live and then to have not only the time and not only the knowledge, but the sort of cultural value that this is what I should do, it's probably not reasonable to expect that. But just because we say that, let's say it's too expensive for them, we look at healthcare and we say healthcare is too expensive. So do we say poor people don't get it too bad? No, we say, okay, well, we should try and figure out some way to get them healthcare because cost is a problem, but perhaps they deserve it. Maybe we should look at food in that way. But I would also say there's so many people that use that as an excuse. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not that poor. So there's many of us that actually do have the time. I think we don't value it enough. I wish more people would learn to cook because cooking is actually fun. I find an incredibly gratifying experience. It's great to cook for your family. You eat much better food. How you instill those values into people is the big question. But I would also say that this idea that processed food is cheap is flat out not true. When people say that, they invariably reach for one example. When I do go down those aisles that you talk about, that's what cranks up my grocery bill. It's not buying the Whole Foods. Maybe you could argue that meat is expensive, but you can also buy cheaper cuts of meat and you can use small amounts of meat to really power a soup or a stew. You can make a pizza and just put a little bit of meat on it. It can really go a long way. I've got three kids. If I take them to a fast food restaurant, that is not a cheap meal. It's 60 bucks. I can put in a fantastic meal on the table for $60. I can buy a good bottle of red wine. So, Cooking real food from scratch is, I think, much cheaper, but you have to have the knowledge. You have to have the interest and the inclination. We don't teach people how to cook at school. So many people just don't have a clue what to do. And if you don't know what you're doing, it can be dissatisfying and you can be very frustrated with the results. But it's
1: realistic to think that you could change the culture given how much money is to be made. Look, if you're a small-scale farmer who's making, to use the meat example, right, someone who's raising livestock in this very old-fashioned way or whatever you're never going to create a multi-billion dollar corporation like a cargill the backs of of something Uh, like that
0: i would say you can if you look at something like grass-fed beef i wrote a whole book about steak that is becoming more and more a significantly larger part of the beef industry big beef companies are now buying into the grass-fed model because there's money to be made people are voting with their dollars and so i think the more we do this the more it can happen. And, then, and the more it does happen, then the cost will start to come down because various economies of scale start to get put in place. But I would also say this, why do we think food has to be so cheap? We're putting it in our bodies. I find it strange. I meet people who are very wealthy, who drive cars worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, who buy the absolute cheapest food, and they get annoyed at the idea of food being more expensive. I couldn't tell you what the cheapest car is. I don't know. I have no idea what the cheapest car is. I don't know where I could get the cheapest haircut, and I don't know what the cheapest clothes are. I don't know what the cheapest headphones or the cheapest computer. I don't know. But somehow with food, we're all like cheap, 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 cheap. And it's going in our body. Maybe we should have more respect for the stuff we put in our body rather than what we put on our body.
1: But if this food really is addictive, right, in in the ways that you describe, then it's it's tough to wean people off of it. Casinos are – everyone knows that casinos are not really – as satisfying as some other ways that you could spend your time. But the lure of the casinos is so strong, right?
0: That it's well, and I, I would say that lure, I don't think it's because people say we live in a hyper palatable food environment. I don't think quarter pounders and KFC double downs, I don't think that is the apex of culinary pleasure. I think those are foods that respond to this impulse to seek calories. I think looking at these other food environments, I talk about Italy, but I mentioned Japan as well. There's way more pleasure to be had in those food environments at far fewer calories. So again, it's not this zero-sum game of calories equals pleasure, and we're all doomed. I think there very much is a happy medium to be found.
1: Right, but there's no pleasure to be found in the slot machines either. People, as you point out, because they're not doing it because they experience pleasure next post. They're doing it because it's the belief that the, the false beliefs that they'll get some kind of satisfaction for their cravings by going there.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it so challenging. Because so I think there's a lot of people that will defend a lot of these foods because they think they like them. And I know it sounds strange, but I think it's like the way the addict thinks that the alcohol will be, taste great, but it doesn't. It's the idea of it that is so compelling. So it really is a challenging situation. How do you break out of it? It's certainly not easy. But I guess I'd say the first step is at least trying to understand it.
1: Mark, thank you so much for joining me. We talk about the wisdom of the body, right? We talk about, we didn't even get into Goethe, who is a hero of mine, right? A real, somebody who really appreciated life and food. And we didn't even talk about the analogy between food and music, which I found fascinating as well. Maybe that'll be your next book. Have you thought of branching out from food into other topics?
0: I have. So I still don't know what the next book will be, but these are certainly topics that I'm fascinated by. And and I'm glad you are too. Maybe we'll have another conversation at some point because you can never run out of things to talk about.
1: Well, thanks again, Mark. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really had a great time. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsilodpodcast.com.